please welcome Stephen back to the pulpit with me now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Very kind. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Very kind. Thank you. If you're visiting here for the first time, they do that every Sunday for me, so I want to give you a heads up for next Lord's Day. Very kind of you. Thank you so much for your cards, emails, prayers. So delighted to have had Dave Burgraff here to just keep hitting that ball out of the park Sunday after Sunday and loving the flock and leading it. And we, um, my wife and I, are so grateful for meals and prayers and, uh, and letters. By the way, I thought I'd just start with a couple of them I thought you'd probably enjoy. This particular letter is from a family. I'll try to leave names out of any of this, but uh, this was from a family who've moved here in, in this year, last year, from New Jersey. And uh, they wrote a nice letter, and then at the end said, P.S., uh, we're originally New Jersey born and bred, and when we heard about you falling, we immediately knew what had transpired on that fateful Saturday afternoon in your garage. When you're raised in the Garden State or New Jersey, you learn early these truths. One, giant stadium sits atop the premier graveyard for mafia snitches. Number two, Godfather does not refer to one who mentors in the ways of God the Father. And three, the following equation always applies. Mob loans plus missed payments equal broken kneecaps. <laughs> they said, rest assured, we'll stick to the party line about you falling. <laughs> And as I mentioned on the phone a couple of weeks ago to dispel the rumor that I had died, so that's why I called you, got a lot of stuff from cats. I mean, more than I would bring to you. But I thought I'd bring a few of them. Here's one cat sitting on a, a, an easy chair. I uh, did a little smirk on her face, which is how they usually are. Uh, this says, I'm sure lots of people are thinking of you and hoping you're feeling better today. I just wanted to let you know that I'm one of them, signed the cat. That's it. <laughs> I'd like to know which one of you taught your cat how to write. That's, that's impressive. Here's another card. Just a picture on the front with a bunch of kittens. Just a bunch of kittens. It says, cheer up. Don't make me send you a basket of kittens. <laughs> and it worked. I cheered up immediately. <laughs> I felt better after getting that card. I had one guy, you know, you've heard my mice problems and... One guy says, Stephen, you really ought to get a cat. In fact, some cats are, are professionals, and he sent me a picture to prove it. Here's a professional cat. <laughs> Personally, I don't think it's a good idea to teach your cat how to shoot a gun. Right, maybe, but not, not shoot. Well, one more. I, I uh, got this card. thought you'd like to see a picture. This one had a turtle on the front of it. Got the ace bandage wrapped around it. It's obviously having trouble. Uh, guy wrote inside the card, since everybody has probably sent you dozens of cards with cat pictures on them, I thought I'd send you one with a turtle instead. Besides, this one was a buck cheaper. <laughs> That's so good. Thank you. And I did enjoy that, and I'm glad you saved a buck. Well, I thought I'd gotten everything, and then I got this. This was given to me. Oh, my. You won't believe this. This is... 
This is a real live dead cat. It's so real. Like, you can come up and look at it afterward. I'm telling you, I've had people walk into my home office. This will be sitting in the going to go, whoa, you got a cat. And I say, well, no, take a good look. I took this out to Pixie yesterday to see what she'd do, our little dog. And I pulled out of the bag and she froze. <laughs> really messed her up. I gave me three weeks of counseling to get her back to normal. But, I, you know, it hit me out there yesterday. I thought, you know what? If she can't tell the difference, the mice can't either. I'm going to set this in the garage. The mice will fall over dead. <laughs> but all that to say, I now, I have a cat I can love. Okay? <laughs> now, I haven't named him yet or her. I've had people suggest names after the service. You pray about it and let me know what you think. <laughs> All right. Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. If I were to ask the average Christian what happened to Joseph and Mary and baby Jesus after the shepherds left the manger scene, what happened next? Many would perhaps say, honestly, I'm not sure. That's because the, the, the normal Christmas pageant ends at verse 20 of Luke 2. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen just as had been told them. Curtain closes. Jesus will emerge from obscurity at his baptism. For the most part, those are the texts that we'll deal with. In fact, in just a few short months, we'll be celebrating his crucifixion and his resurrection. Nothing wrong with that. But there is something, there are some things that happened after that. Now, obviously, we do have a challenge. We, we face the fact that God the Father evidently left much of what could have been recorded about God the Son's life between his birth and ministry off the pages of or the record of Scripture. He, he wisely knew, if you think about it, that we have enough trouble grasping or even coming close to seizing some measure of the truth of God becoming a baby. We're going to have real trouble with considering God as a four-year-old or a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 16-year-old, 20-year-old. Perhaps for that reason, knowing that in the human heart, Mystery can so often turn into mysticism and myth and misinterpretation. The Lord left it out. So the church, unfortunately, has come along and spoken where God has been silent. In the third and fourth centuries, you have the documentation of wives' tales and myths and legends in what's called apocryphal writings. Apocryphal means hidden. It, it came to mean spurious or dubious. And, and really what they were was a cataloging of, of stories that bolstered the corrupting church's views of a number of things, like purgatory and praying to Mary or the saints. And, and these apocryphal writings would support that, although they had nothing to do with Scripture. And one particular apocryphal book, the Infancy Gospel of Thomas, attempts to fill in the gaps of what happened when Jesus was a boy and, of course, takes you way off the tracks of truth. Give you some illustrations. One particular event recorded in the Gospel of Thomas was where Jesus fashioned out, he was a little boy, fashioned sparrows. He sort of crafted them out of dirt, mud, 
And uh, he did it on the Sabbath day, which was a violation. He was working. And so the little children, his playmates, ran off to tattle on him. And Joseph came out there to set the record straight and discipline him. And Jesus, however, breathed on these clay pigeons and they came to life and flew away. Thus, there's no evidence of his violation of the Sabbath. Clever boy. Uh, There were times when he dealt with bullies in the neighborhood On one occasion, a boy from the village threw a rock at him, hit him on the shoulder, and he turned around and cursed him, and the boy fell down dead. Another time, he was making, he was playing out in the rain, and he was making little mud puddles. He had built up, you know, little little, uh, uh, perimeters, and and it was collecting rainwater, and he was miraculously making the rainwater pure and drinkable. And the son of Annas, the high priest, this is interesting how it would be the son of Annas, of course. Well, he comes along and he stomps all over those mud puddles and he causes the water to to run away, to flow away. Jesus turns and he says, you won't live to see tomorrow, and the boy falls down and dies. And that's what we would expect. That that we could see an eight-year-old responding uh, like we might have responded to some bully. Maybe you had a bully in your neighborhood. Any of you live with somebody you feared to ride by his house? I did. His name was Frankie. We'll never forget him. Still remember as a 10-year-old. Out there with my friends. We had little bicycles. and We saw Frankie come out. He was about 13 walking away from us. And I was the courageous one. And I decided I would pedal my bike past him. And he wouldn't catch me. Not to mention that I called him every name in the book as I rode by him, but I wasn't called into the ministry yet, so it was okay, I I think. And and I did, and I made it past him and was celebrating and then realized I'd ridden my bike into a cul-de-sac. I was not very bright, and he caught me, pummeled me, of course. But if I had had just a little power, how would I have responded as a 10-year-old? Much like we would assume the Lord would. But the problem is all we're doing is projecting into his life our responses. We know that he was protected by his divine nature from sinning. He wouldn't have been capable of being the unblemished lamb apart from it. The trouble with these apocryphal writings, and there are many of them, is they describe really a a different Jesus. He becomes this rude, unkind, vengeful, self-centered, even rebellious boy. In fact, on one occasion, Thomas's gospel records that he took his father's ears in his hands and he pinched them until it hurt. And then he looked at Joseph and said, you deserve that. This is not... An unblemished lamb. That's the kind of life we could imagine. We, are, we, we know from Scripture, let's go back to sola scriptura. The Scriptures alone. He never sinned, Hebrews 9.14. He would grow up to have a, have a life that perfectly fulfilled, not the traditions of man, but the law of God. Matthew 5.17. He would be the unblemished lamb capable of atoning for our sin, not his. 1 John 2.2. 2. So what does the Bible record about the boyhood of Jesus? Some remarkable things. It's not as silent as the average uh, Christmas pageant may imply. In fact, eight days after his birth, some wonderful events began to unfold in the life of Mary and Joseph and Jesus. So let's go to verse 21. Verse 21. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now we're going to see three ceremonies that either directly or indirectly involve Jesus. 
And they're going to reveal probably more about Mary and Joseph than they do Jesus. But they will be significant as they allow him to fulfill the law, even as an infant. The first ceremony we could call the ceremony of identification. Eight days after Mary delivered Jesus, every Jewish baby boy, him included, would be circumcised. That is, if the baby's parents cared to be identified with the people of God. Circumcision brought the boy into the national life of the Hebrew people, and it identified him as one who was acknowledging the sign, the token of the covenant. It was commanded in Genesis 17. In fact, had Jesus not been circumcised, he would not have identified with his people, even though his parents were descendants of Abraham. So this is, a, this is really a statement of faith. Mary and, and Joseph are following God's word related to the Abrahamic covenant. And by fulfilling this command, then they, they set the scene, they set the stage for Jesus Christ to be eligible to fulfill the promises that God had pledged to Abraham. For every faithful Jewish family, circumcision was considered so sacred a duty, it was allowed to be accomplished on the Sabbath, if that was the eighth day. After the boy's birth, a Jewish doctor could be a rabbi, could be someone trained, would simply cut away the foreskin. It would be during this simple ceremony where the name of the child would be bestowed in this dedicatory ceremony upon the baby. They would announce his name. And the painful cry of our Lord pierced the air, and it caused me to consider the fact that this is the first moment of suffering at the hand of mankind for having become a man. These are among his first tears at having taken on human flesh. His humiliation and his suffering had already begun at eight days. In fact, before. Joseph and Mary are also suffering. They're dazed. They're ostracized, confused. They're alone, these two teenagers. Mary certainly, Joseph may have been a little older. They've traveled to Bethlehem under a cloud of suspicion, all because of the will of God. It's been a whirlwind. Their lives have only recently been upended. And it had already taken an angel a couple of visits to convince Joseph to follow through this betrothal period and take Mary to be your wife. She really has conceived of the Holy Spirit. But listen, there will be no wedding ceremony. There will be no wedding celebration. There's no festive uh, uh, events where the village ce- uh, celebrated the hoopah, the, the union of, of Joseph and Mary. And that little baby is just one more exclamation point, exhibit A, on their guilt. They will never live it down. The rumors will never go away. In fact, when Jesus Christ makes his claim to be the Messiah, the Jewish leaders are going to pull up the dirt from the past. They're going to go back to the files and pull this one up, and they'll throw it back in Jesus' face, and they will accuse him, we were not born of fornication like you were. Don't lecture us. We know where you got your start. You're no representative of God. Joseph and Mary, in fact, it's already begun. They're going to move from the courtyard or the cave or some outdoor lean-to stable. 
into humble quarters somewhere in Bethlehem while Joseph is going to take odd jobs to, to eke out an existence with a few of his tools and his calloused hands. Now, I want you to know this. Even though they will never be viewed by the Jewish community as credible, godly, obedient sons and daughters of Abraham, they will still identify their son as a son of Abraham through circumcision. They are going to refuse to acquiesce to perception. And even though the people of God would not identify with them, they will identify with the people of God. Talk about courage. I couldn't help but think about us. You watch them carefully identifying Jesus with the law of God and you ask yourself, what does it take to keep you from obeying, from submitting, surrendering to the word of God? Accusation? Criticism? Mockery? Pain? Loss? Failure? Abandonment? Will you obey God on that campus even though to obey him means you invite ridicule? Will you forfeit a relationship as you pursue the holiness of God and recognize that relationship is against the word of God? Will you identify with the people of God? I mean, will people at your job even know what you did today? Or will that be a little secret? Because I don't want them to think that I'm a fanatic or imbalanced. And so that's, we leave that at home. What does it take for you to say, you know, if this is what running the race means, I'm going to sit this one out. If obeying God leads to this kind of misunderstanding or hurt or, or accusation or mistreatment, never mind, and I'm sure God doesn't mind. If doing the right thing causes me such discomfort, surely God will understand if I wiggle out of that one. You see, you need to understand eight days into this, this is the backdrop. This backdrop of lifelong discomfort, Joseph and Mary will not miss one step. On the eighth day, they bring forward the little boy, and they deliver a message. Even though everybody believes the boy is illegitimate, the result of fornication, here's the message. Our family and this boy will identify with the people of God. We will follow the word of God. We will obey the will of God. Now notice again verse 21, Luke writes, his name was then called Jesus. At this ceremony of identification, he is given this name. This was a name chosen for him. The angel had come to both Mary and Jesus to confirm to both of them this was the name they were to give him. Now to understand the significance of this name, you've got to travel back to the first person in the Bible that had the name. I'll give you a few clues. He was a young man at the time. His name was changed to this name. He was born into slavery. In fact, for his parents to give him his given name, which was Hosea, that was a statement of faith because it meant 
salvation. Can you imagine slave parents in Egypt under Pharaoh naming their son, we're going to get out of this. That was a statement of faith. Little boy grew up, caught the attention of Moses, became his assistant, and Moses changed his name from Hosea to Yahashua. He simply took some names of the great name Yahweh and he wove them into some of the letters uh, or the letters of Yahweh, some of the letters of his name and he created Yahashua. Jehovah is salvation. The name is shortened to Joshua. The Greek counterpart is Yeshua. Jesus anglicized for us. It carried the idea that this person so named would be the agent of salvation. He would be the deliverer. And now hundreds of little boys running around Israel when Jesus was born had the name Yeshua. It's a very common name, Jesus. Jesus. They had the, they'd been given that because their moms and dads had the notion that maybe our little boy would have something to do with the deliverance of the people of God. But this one would. He was the agent of salvation. Jehovah is salvation. In fact, he was Jehovah. And he is salvation. I couldn't help but wonder who was at this ceremony to hear the announcement of his name. Typically, this would be a festive event and family and extended family would all be there. In my mind's eye, I see Mary and Joseph and a man trained in circumcision. That's it. And they breathe the name. They bestow on him the name Jesus. I wonder if the Jewish doctor stifled a yawn. Oh, one more. One more false hope. One more dream. I wonder if it was a rabbi who would have shaken his head at the audacity of this young couple obviously bearing a child without any, any references or attending family members. They're alone. They're evidently, from all appearances, they've conceived this one in sin. How could this one deliver anybody? See, my friend, you talk about the humiliation of, of the incarnation. Here's a story we rarely look at. He came without fanfare, He's alone now with his parents and this performance of circumcision, this rite of identification, and there's no festivity. He's given the name Jesus, and I can imagine the attendant thought, you've got to be kidding. Now, under the knife, into the covenant, the deliverer has been identified with his people, whether they recognized it or not. And Joseph and Mary and their eight-day-old son, still whimpering in pain, go back to some undisclosed rented property to eke out their existence. There's another ceremony. It's the ceremony of redemption. Look at verse 22. When the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed... They brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, if you go back in the Bible, and we won't for the sake of time today, to Leviticus chapter 12, you discover that the days of purification for a new mother of a male child was 40 days. 
The law prescribed carefully that she, of course, would be defiled because of the issuing of blood. She would for seven days wait, and then on the eighth day with her baby and husband go and have the ceremony of identification performed, and they'd bestow on him the name. Thirty-three days later, on the 40th day, that'd be the earliest day, she could go to a priest, a local priest, and with her husband, they could pay five shekels and redeem him from priestly service. They were effectively buying their son's service from God. Now, if you look at the last part of verse 22, it tells us a little more. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. That word holy literally means separated. You might write it in the margin of your Bible. It means separated unto God. This was effectively the draft, so to speak. If the male child was from the tribe of Levi, he was without any question, drafted into priestly service. And he would grow up to serve in that system. This was the government. Uh, this was not only religious, but, but civic leadership. They were the senators and the representatives. They ran the religious system, the civil system, at least as much as the Roman government would allow them to during the days of, of Christ. But, but, but this, was, this was the Levite male. Now, if the baby was born into a different tribe, and Jesus was born into the tribe of Judah... He could be purchased out of that draft for five shekels. I don't know how much five shekels is, but I have read enough to know it's about two or three days' labor. This is not inexpensive. This is called the redemption of the firstborn. I wonder if they had any idea of the irony of this ceremony. They are buying Jesus, as it were, from God when Jesus had come to buy a people. For God. Amazing to me. They're, they're redeeming the Redeemer. And, and I want you to notice again, and I'll stop just a moment, they're, they're adding to their poverty. They didn't have much to begin with. They've already had to pay the census tax. They've had to support themselves as they've journeyed to Bethlehem. Now they've got to pay five shekels. So the will of God is taxing. It is tiring. It is uncomfortable. It is uneasy. It is expensive. And it is lonely for them. But they were God's chosen couple to bear and raise the Redeemer. But so far, God has not paid them anything but a a few angelic visits. And it seems that they're paying him. Have you ever gotten the idea that you are paying God? And he didn't seem to be paying up in return. You also need to understand, for them, the cost was not the issue. Obedience was. And they're willing to meet and pay the demands of obedience. Beyond that, Joseph and Mary were not required by law to go to Jerusalem to pay this tax. They could have given five shekels to a local priest and saved the wear and tear. But they're going to do it. In fact, on, at, the, at the 40th day, when, when it would allow Mary, beyond her, her, her being defiled, to go to the center of worship, that's where they're going. They're going to go above and beyond. They want to go to the temple and present 
Jesus to the priest and pay the redemption tax, they'd put it in the third trumpet-shaped slot that came out of the court of women. There were 13 of them, one for every tribe, one for for, uh, uh, Gentile proselytes. And, And they would put it in the third one, I think. I'm not sure that may have been Levi's. And they were effectively paying the priests because our son will not grow up. Did they understand they were paying to redeem the high priest? I doubt it. They would grow into their understanding. But in their childlike faith, they, they want to go to the center of worship and they're going to present the Savior to the sovereign. <laughs> they're, they're presenting God to God. They are presenting the Son to the Father. They're, they're going with the object of our worship to the house of worship. They are bringing the Lord of the temple into the temple of the Lord. All the activity going on around them. As Mary stood in the court of women with Joseph next to her holding the baby, this was the system that God had designed. Here God becomes flesh. He comes to live among us. And guess what? As many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become babies, belonging to God. The price is paid by this this one who will grow up to be crucified so that we can become newborn, infants, babes, belonging to our triune God. So far, Mary and Joseph have carefully followed all that the law required and more so. They've attended the ceremony of identification, the ceremony of redemption. There's one more ceremony here, the ceremony of purification. The ceremony of purification. Now, according to the law, as I've mentioned, Mary was unclean following the birth of Jesus. After 40 days, she would be required to take to the local priest two sacrifices. She could bring a lamb and a bird, or if she didn't have the money, two birds. They would atone for her defilement. One sacrifice atoned for her defilement, having delivered a child, having issued touched blood. As you know, the Old Testament system would have called them, considered them unclean for a period of time. The second, that is the turtle dove or the pigeon, would have restored her communion with God and allowed her to participate in the temple. Well, she doesn't want to stay in Bethlehem and do that with a local priest. She wants to go to the temple. She wants to have communion at the very place where people are communing through atonement with God. But you need to stop for a moment and understand the idea that Mary was above the need for atonement, that that Mary was above defilement, that she lived some kind of perfect, sinless life is outside of Scripture. Clearly, Scripture finds her following the law. She is in need of atonement. She was in need of sacrifice. She has been defiled by the birth of her son. In fact, bearing the perfect, sinless Son of God into the world did not make her sinless. It actually defiled her. She had to be atoned for in this simple way before she could even worship again. It did not exempt her from the law. She was impure, could not worship for 40 days in the temple. She's so excited that she can go to the temple. They travel to Jerusalem to do that. According to the law specifically given for a new mother, 
Leviticus chapter 12, Mary is going to bring to the priest then at the temple either a lamb to atone for her defilement and a bird to restore communion or two birds. And the text implies that she's fulfilling the law, verse 25, as it relates to two birds. They didn't have money for a lamb. She was then allowed to bring two pigeons or turtle doves. They are the only two birds allowed as sacrificial birds or gifts. Lambs were very expensive. Turtle doves, they were a problem because they migrated from fall to spring. But, but just like today, pigeons are everywhere. And so she got two pigeons. She would have been ushered over to the gate nearest the sanctuary beyond the court of women. She would have presented her two birds to a priest there and she would have watched him walk away the altar, and she would have, with Joseph holding Jesus, watched the smoke ascending, knowing she's been atoned for and she now has communion with God, and they would have had the sense of joy that these 40 days have been completed. They have kept the law. These who will be ostracized by law keepers will keep the law. She couldn't afford to buy a lamb. Not even sure she fully realized she had brought the lamb, the lamb, for the final offering. And with that, they're finished. These three ceremonies have taken place, and they might have slipped out of the temple. And on their way back, had God not designed two witnesses to be on hand to testify, probably more for encouraging them than anybody else. And we don't have time today, but let me just briefly mention one. Simeon. Anna will come a little later on and tell everybody about it. Simeon shows up first. Luke tells us in verse 25 that Simeon was a righteous and devout man looking for the consolation, that is the advocate, the counsel, the defense of Israel. Now some scholars believe that Simeon was the son of the famous rabbi Hillel and that he was also the father of Gamaliel, the tutor of the apostle Paul. Simeon would be the leading member, in fact, the president of the Sanhedrin in A.D. 13. And it's very intriguing that the Mishnah, which was the Jewish commentary on life and processes, related the stories and accomplishments of their Sanhedrin presidents and leading rabbis except this man. He's absent. No mention of Simeon. Why? Probably because he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, and that would be an embarrassment to the Sanhedrin. It's ironic that Simon's name or Simeon's name means hearing. And he was listening to God. In fact, Simeon had been told by God that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah with his own eyes. And so he comes to the temple time and time again and he's probably looking around and he's, he wonders, well, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the one. And he goes over and he meets the couple and he says, what's the baby's name? No, that's not it. Oh, there's a couple. What's that? Oh, that's a girl. No. Oh, over here, there's a, there's a little boy. What, what's his name? Who are you? No, that's not the one. Day after day after day, we have the indication or implication that he's an old man now. And the Spirit says to him on this day, Simeon, now would be a great day to go to the temple and just hang out. Just watch. He goes to the temple. The text tells us that verse 27, when he came in the Spirit into the temple... The parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he took him into his arms and he blessed God. This was the one. Anna will come later 
Start rejoicing with them. What incredible joy. What incredible commotion. What a disturbance of the peace. At the arrival of the Prince of Peace. People would stop. They'd be curious. They'd, they'd probably walked away thinking, that's ridiculous. That's the, that's the strangest thing I've ever heard. Oh, not Simeon. He says in verse 29, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Effectively, literally, he's saying, I have seen with my own eyes salvation. Yeshua. I can now die in peace. By the way, there's truth in this for us all. None of us are ready to die until we have seen with the eyes of faith Yeshua. Until we have received the truth of Christ into our lives, we are not ready. We're not ready to die. Are you prepared today to die? You are not until you've believed in this one who is Jehovah, salvation, deliverer, advocate, counsel, Yeshua, Jesus, Christ, that is the Messiah. So here they are. Joseph, Mary, Anna, a few curious people maybe. Simeon probably wouldn't let the baby go. Tears coursing down his cheeks. If you can kind of pull away, as I have in my mind's eye, my imagination, pull up. So you're looking down. Perhaps you would see there in the court of women four adults, one of them holding a little baby, a few people looking in. But other than that, just... The motion and the movements and the processes and the rituals, the priests and the animals, hundreds of people milling around, coming and going, all of it looking to, all of it longing for, all of it pointing to this one. And there he is. The one who'd come to die as the final sacrifice. The one who would rip the curtain effectively from top to bottom, opening up the Holy of Holies so that every one of us, Gentiles who see the light of revelation, Israelites who accept the glory of Christ, can come in boldly and worship God their Father. All because of this one. And by the way, all because in these very early days, a young couple were willing to obey the word of God. A songwriter wrote of the newborn Messiah with these words, and I close with this. Hope now has two hands. Freedom has feet. Truth can now stand. The word can speak. The holy and lowly will finally embrace. One stanza says, compassion now has tears. Joy has a laughter. Redemption's blood has veins to flow in, a temple to glow in. Light is now a child. The holy and the lowly will finally embrace.
God has a heartbeat. Grace has a face. Father, thank you for delivering to us these ceremonies which reveal to us the preparation of the Messiah having kept the law through his parents even as he's only days old. Thank you for revealing to us a fresh perspective on two people that could serve as a model who were willing to obey you, surrender to your will, taxing, Difficult, lonely, tiring, expensive, as it was. Thank you for an old man who was hearing, listening. Thank you for a woman who had been waiting as well, too, to testify. Along with Joseph and Mary and all that had come before them, that the Messiah was now a little baby boy. He'd come. Perhaps God's Spirit has provoked in your heart something you need to decide to do or to stop doing or to change or to begin thinking or to resolve, whatever. Would you talk to the Lord and put a period where there right now is a question mark? Would you be one of those who is listening, hearing, while you're talking to the Lord, if you don't know Christ personally, you've never embraced by faith the light sent to the Gentiles, the glory delivered to Israel. We would love to take the Bible and show you how you can know for sure you're prepared to die. In fact, you're really ready to live. Thank you, Father, for your word. Sharper than any two-edged sword, and yet at the same time comforting as we obey and submit. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the humiliation, the pain and suffering. You could have chosen another couple. You could have been raised in more comfortable surroundings. You could have placed yourself above the law and redefined everything. You could have cursed playmates so they died. You could have treated enemies like that if you died while enemies spit at you, reviled you, and we are in that company of those who rejected you, whose sin you died for upon that tree. Thank you that by faith and the grace of you, our God, our eyes have been opened to the glorious light of the gospel. Help us to live in light of these truths, we pray. 